0: Hello and welcome to a twilight, kind of semi-lockdown episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Usually we do this by visiting the guest workshop or studio, but for the time being we're making do by recording over the internet instead and it seems to be going okay. Thank you so much to everyone who's taken the time and trouble to listen so far. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the excellent Lin Chung. Now, I think it's safe to say that Lin is one of the most important names in jewellery design right now. Her output vacillating between installation pieces, work that contains political and social commentary, as well as high profile commissions, including the medals for the 2012 Paralympic Games in London. She picked up an Arts Foundation Prize in 2001 and a Gerwood Contemporary Makers Award in 2008. In 2017, she was shortlisted for the Woman's Hour Craft Prize, while in 2018, she picked up the prestigious Francois Van den Bosch Award. She's also a teacher on the jewellery course at Central St. Martins. As one critic said, Lynn's work is a commentary on the human condition, a conveyor of the maker's thoughts and feelings, a constant exploration into the meanings of jewellery. Over the years, she's worked in a range of materials, but at least to begin with, I'm keen to chat with her about her most recent collections, which have been made from stone. Lynn, thank you very much for doing this.
1: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. That's, that's lovely. <laughs> that's
0: a pleasure. Uh, was that okay?
1: Yeah, thank you very much.
0: <laughs> we usually do these interviews in our guest studios, as I said, or their workshops. Mm. Um, obviously, that isn't possible at the moment. So perhaps, could you tell us a little bit about where you currently find yourself?
1: It, in one way, I know you know, in recent circumstances um, that there's been a lot of dramatic change, but for me, it's not a huge difference or shift to what I would normally do you know I, I live outside of London I've got my you know studio and workshop at home and it, it's near Farnham you know just outside of London so mm. it some days feel like a, a regular day because I would be here in the studio or at home you know and, and, and working away anyway and then the other half of the week I'd, I'd be journeying into London for teaching so that's shifted and changed and it's sort of more drawn out you know I'm sort of here every day on the face of it it just seems like a a sort of regular day you know until you switch on the news and you know listen to the radio and and see what's going on in the world so yeah pretty much my practice and working environment hasn't changed so I work in a way you know I work from home anyway
0: yeah can you tell us a bit about your workshop Lynn is it very tidy Uh, are you a messy worker Uh (laughs) How how do you work?
1: You know, you're not the first person to ask that. I mean, I, I think because I'm quite a private person and, you know, I think with a lot of artists or makers, there's a very public side to you and, and it's a, always a curiosity to the private side you know, and, and I'm the same I'm always curious to know how people work so uh, the tidiness okay <laughs> it, it's not as tidy <laughs> as you imagine I like things as they are and I like my own space and where I've left things I think that's quite important so I've got half the sort of workshop the jeweller's bench let's say in the house purely because it's warm we've got heating in the house and the other half is in the garage um half is where I've got the sort of stone cutting bigger equipment it's a bit messy it's cold in there and and I share that with um you know all, all the other things that you would find in the garage um the lawn mower the motorbike etc so it's not tidy on the face of it but actually it's always the same when I come back so in that sense that kind of tidiness quite important to me so if I've just left a tool where it was or if I've left a mess I know I can come back and sort of pick up where I left off yeah so I've got half in the garage and, and it's half in the house
0: <laughs> and are you a biker I'm intrigued
1: Uh no it's my husband so we're yeah right it's a lifelong passion you know of, of his and I ride pillion you know I, I did learn to ride a bike at one point in, in my life but I never sort of progressed to my full license so we, we have an interest in yeah, it's sort of vintage vehicles and um, vintage bikes, motorbikes. So it's a big part of our life, actually, and a big part of the garage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Can we kick off um, by talking about jewellery? Yeah. It seems to me that it presents a, a bit of a dichotomy. On one hand, it's seen as frippery and unnecessary, but on the other, we invest certain pieces of jewellery with a, a huge amount of emotional import, you know, wedding bands, for instance. It's also quite a difficult fit. It doesn't seem to quite go into the art world or, or the design world. Yeah. So, from your perspective, I'm interested to know why you think jewellery matters.
1: I think what I like about it, and there's something important, is no matter how it's defined, you know, you you could say from the high street to the artist studio, and you know, and everything else in between, great important works of jewellery, you know, and collectibles to the the sort of throwaway. In fact, you know, in that you find um, so easily. And to the homemade is that I always find it fascinating because it, to me, it's still slightly shapeless and we don't know why (laughs) we maybe we use it and wear it. And so I like that freedom. I like the fact that I'm contributing to something that we all can. And it's like a an object that we can define it. It's in the dictionary. It says what it is and you can we can all recognize it like everybody understands a piece of jewellery. And yet it still carries the sense of, it signifies a sense of the unknown in life. It's like an object that can absorb and make comment about all the uncertainties, you know, like, let's say, belief, like hopes, like dreams, like things that are intangible. It, it's an object that I feel that can kind of absorb some of that. And it's like, a, a you know, opens up a conversation, and a dialogue through it. So there's sort of many examples mm. of, I think we may know about it we know what it's made of but actually what it signified why that person made it and I'm thinking about things in you know museums and from other cultures and and we can marvel at what maybe that was trying to say you know on that day back then or you know wh- when it was made and I find that really quite fascinating that we still as humans now as you know as we go about our life that there's still a part of us that needs maybe objects to lodge that sort of thought, put those thoughts in or um, a, a way to communicate that, that those sort of unknowns or hopes and, um, you know, that, that that kind of thing. So I find that quite fascinating just when mm. it's mm. a bit like me, just when I feel like I dismiss it because, yeah, it can be any shape, form, any material. That That's how I see it. I know a lot of people may not, you know, think that immediately pops into their head, but um, I find that quite fascinating that it's, it's this malleable, almost concept and form at the same time, you know, so... Yeah, I, I, and it keeps me going. I think, you know, I have a kind of almost like a love-hate relationship with it. <laughs> and, uh, and that kind of drives me in a way. You know, I find it fascinating. So I tend kind of not to take sides or have a, um, you know, I, I have personal taste, obviously, and, and connections with it. But I find it very fascinating to explore the ins and outs of why we wear it, what it looks like, who made it, where's it from, well, and the kind of why of it, why of its existence, you know, so, yeah. Mm. And I, and I feel that's very important. I think it, you know, I'm, I'm, I, d- I don't need to kind of, let's say, um, create a significance for it. It already is. And I, and I feel comfortable with that. So it, it it's not going to go away and, and it's something that will will remain quite, quite important, you know, either individually mm. or, or collectively and, and publicly. Um, as a vehicle for expression. Well, let's
0: get into a little bit about the why from your perspective. As you know, this podcast is focused on materials. You've worked in a number. But to begin with, at least, the one I'm keen to concentrate on is stone. And particularly, it's yeah. used in your series Delayed Reactions, which are, I mean, delayed reactions for the listeners, are fundamentally, they're kind of the badges that you'd see in political campaigns that are usually made of metal and plastic. But instead of being made from metal and plastic and being cheap, you've fashioned them from what lapis lazuli, for for instance, and yes, they yes. contain a series of other other messages. In the first instance, what are you trying to say with them, Lynn? What kind of messages do they contain?
1: Well, the 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 ones that you've described out of lapis, so it's a a very deep blue, and mm. the the particular pieces are of that series. And, and actually inlaid into the surface uh, a little gold stars. I I sort of came across stone only recently and got sort of quite profoundly interested in it. I, I actually did a, a five-day gem carving workshop with Charlotte de Sillis, uh, and Charlotte lives and works in Norfolk.
0: Who's a brilliant jewellery designer in her own rights, Absolutely, right.
1: Absolutely, yes, and working for almost over 50 years now, mm. gemstone carving, making... Pieces, um, you know, so, you know, a lifelong career of, of, of making jewellery and carving. So it, it started there, you know, in 2014, and something sort of just hit me straight away. So I went from having no knowledge or any appreciation, in fact, um, apart from, you know, just um, appreciating Charlotte's work and, and, and other gemstone carvers, but no intense interest. So actually getting hands on the material at that point, you know, something sort of popped in my mind really and i i was just absolutely fascinated by it not least because charlotte's a a wonderful teacher as well as a maker and incredibly generous Mm. so the whole experience i think of discovering what you can do with the material uh feeling it cut feeling it being cut it it sort of brought me back to maybe my earlier days in brighton where where i trained uh, on my ba of that that first moment of of, a kind of feeling a material and going what what's this all about and then and then something happens, you know, you sort of, um, there, there's a, a, a lovely sort of, not entirely a, a full understanding, but you kind of connect with it. And you go, mm. okay, I'm, I'm onto something here. So it was nice to discover that again, I think, after all those years. And um,
0: Why were you looking at stone in the first instance?
1: I think I had a kind of curiosity about it. And I it was one of those things that, that had sort of fascinated me, but I had no knowledge. So I think I just signed up just to, um, have a go and, and learn a bit more about it so from that point I think I understood that it was a very different process to how I'd worked before I'd always constructed objects I'd always brought the material and added to and when mm. you stone carve it's a, a subtractive process so actually you, You know, it's obvious you you take the material away, and you know what what you lose and what you reveal. So it was a huge shift in that sense as well. And I think it dawned on me that I'd not appreciated that before in my making. It was always an adding to, you know, and a layering of something. So it it felt quite profound because of that too. Not only discovering uh, a a rather beautiful material, and I'm generalising here because there are different stones, but having to think about maybe being creative with it in taking that material away. So it started there and the delayed reactions series was sort of part and parcel of that. I think in the couple of years before the delayed reactions badges came out and that was in 2016 driven by, you know, how the political and social landscape was changing, you know, in that, in that year with the EU referendum um you know with what was going on in the US at the time so in in the two years gathering machinery and equipment to try and cut my own stone so then I went away from Charlotte's and tried to set it up in the garage you know here or, or at home with mm. only the knowledge that I got from Charlotte that day but then I started to research I started to look at second-hand equipment I just gathered what I could and, and just wanted to get going um as soon as possible and I think that sense of maybe discovering something and looking at something afresh with then by the time I caught up in 2016 with everything else going on it felt like I was I was just trying to find my way with something and at the same time there was this cathartic feeling of trying to find my way through what was going on in the world at the time with material in hand so this is looking back at the time I was still yeah. just kind of messing around with the stone and cutting and, you know, <laughs> you know, and the frustration of that, you know, breaking things and going, okay, that's not what I expected <laughs> to happen or I wonder how to do this. You know, there, there was all of that kind of frustration and, and, and loveliness of discovery mixed in. We're trying to make sense of the world. And um, I have Radio 4 on almost, you know, constantly and and, and you know, keeping up date with what was going on. Some of it, I'm sure, and as I know now, it it fed in. It it, it went all the way through. Somehow I processed it and it sort of came out into the, into the piece that I made at that point, which is the lapis lazuli piece, the same size as a large, yeah, like pin badge. And I carved, um, you know, almost exactly. I I made the recess in the back and I sprung a pin inside to make it look like a, yeah, a cheap pin badge. Uh, but on the face of it, I decided to just put the emoji face of Confused. So there's two stars for eyes and five with a downturned mouth, you know, and uh, a kind of graphic, yeah, a, a graphic symbol, as you would use the emoji if you were confused. And and so I sort of laboured over it. And, that yeah, so something maybe c- kind of got me going on that. And I thought, I, and I made that one for myself. I didn't, at that time, knew or, or imagine that it would carry on. So I was right in the midst of being um, wowed by a new material to me, a stone, and trying mm. to wrestle with it, um, find out about it. And at the same time, there was a lot going on around me that I think sort of got absorbed into that. And that's how it all started. And it led on to other responses and ideas and I ended up making a series based um, around um, the the lapis lazuli set so with different faces on the surface so inlaid with different stars different configurations um, each time perhaps commenting on, on, on something you know trying to make sense of it and they're to perhaps titled delayed reactions in in the sense i there was a delay in absorbing uh, uh, the time of events and processing it and also the longevity uh, the 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 kind of time it took just for me to make in stone it took mm. a long time because i was all you know making the mistakes and discovering and making improvements as i was going along
0: what what are the challenges of making in stone
1: i think for me, it's it's that unexpectedness that can be a frustration. I think you imagine it's very hard, and, and you know, and very sturdy, which it is. But you don't appreciate that actually within that there's fragility and the different um, types of stones you might come across, and they have their own different properties. So without that knowledge of gemology and you know insight into the, the mineral structure, sometimes I'm just. I'm cutting away or I might be forcing something and actually there, there was probably a way to do it that's much more sympathetic to the, the type of stone that I've got in hand so I in a way I sort of learnt by trial and error and just trying things out it's never the same so to have created that series I think my initial thought was as you would imagine I, I would want them the same and actually that's not on offer to me in in the stone so every piece of lapis is is entirely different
0: Mm. there are
1: subtle changes and inclusions of other minerals that make it um, a bit more crumbly I would say sort of uh, brittle so it's not as as tight a material but in the end I embraced it I thought well this is how I'm doing it and how I would appreciate it so um, in the scheme of things you can judge the quality of a stone by what you know what's it's free of let's say so let's say lapis the blue it is um the higher the value or, or the greater the appreciation i was quite content that it it was the stone i had and I, I could find within that a way to express the idea so i wasn't so particularly hung up about the, the kind of quality in that sense of the stone but just i just wanted it to do what i wanted it to do you know like yeah. hold together and more or less say, you know, what what I was hoping, you know, to try and achieve with each piece. But that's also its strength. I think that the fact it is, it can be a bit fragile. You can't have the same piece twice, you know, even if you parted the same the, the same rock. It has those unique qualities to it. And I think in a way that does add to, yeah, maybe the beauty of, of, of seeing a collection, then you can kind of appreciate that there's variety in that. And it goes against the kind of blanked out mass-produced idea of the same badge you know exactly the same Mm. Mm. i think it added to that as well without knowing at the time you know you know upon reflection
0: i'm intrigued i mean in this process it sounds like the material came before the idea is that the way that you work generally or how does your practice you know what is your process in that sense the relationship between idea and material
1: well that's interesting because that also shifted up until the point of Working with Stone, I always, I still do to a certain extent now, but I've always been driven by an idea. So I I would think about a a concept or, uh, you know, something that I'm trying to, you know, wanting to express. And then I would gather the materials together, maybe to try and help me say that, you know. So it starts off that way and then the materials get pulled together. Working with Stone, it was... So complete opposite. So you're right, in the sense it starts with the material. So I, I would have to kind of feel around and imagine what I could say with that, you know, what that might lead to, what this might suggest, you know, in the qualities of the stone itself. And sometimes it's quite detailed and, and other times it's just the, the sense of a colour, you know, in in the delayed reaction series with the, the blue. So the fact that they it was a blue stone. And the same colour as the, um, the EU flag, the same mm. azure colour. And azurite is the blue mineral that makes lapis the, the lovely blue that it is and, and the gold. So in this instance, I'm borrowing much more from the material and letting that drive and maybe instill ideas. So that's been quite a, a big shift. And, um, it, it's been a lovely way to work.
0: I mean, it seems to me you're, you're constantly playing with the the possibilities of, of jewellery and what jewellery is and mm. also the things of, around jewellery, really. Yeah, and I was intrigued yeah. by your Keep series, where you produce pieces with titles such as Bottom of a Plastic Bag that looks, I mean the piece <laughs> itself looked like the bottom of a plastic bag, yes. only it was made from rock crystal and attached to an 18-carat gold chain. Yes. I mean, what was the thinking behind that series, Lim?
1: You're right. I do have this fascination with jewellery and all ways and forms you know in thinking about it conceptually owning it wearing it I appreciate it you know and I I, you know I teach and I engage with it as well so I I find it a really you know an enlivening and and inspirational you know subject to explore and object or piece to wear and engage with and I just noticed that part of the life of jewellery or the object and thinking about it is maybe it's care and where it lives in our homes or on our desktops or in our pockets or connection with the body, you know, so, and that detachment as well. So coming back to, you know, keeping items that we never wear and it's still there somewhere kind of safe and um, meaningful, you know, you know where mm. it is. And I, and I find that quite interesting. I find that kind of proximity of where an object is can also tell us something about how we, you know, look after it and care about it. And that's not always uh, positive. You know, sometimes it's it's a bit of neglect and absent-mindedness. And and I found that I I do care for, for my jewellery and objects, but there's, I'm also quite practical. So, and I, you know, I, I used to travel a lot. So I always had jewellery with me and I, I enjoy wearing other people's work, very rarely my own. And I noticed I would just, um, not out of disrespect for the piece but just out of practicality I would wrap it up in whatever I had and if you're a maker you've got you know work everywhere and jewellery everywhere and they're always in plastic bags little um, pouches and that um, jewellers or makers are familiar just that first contact of a piece that you you hide away or protect so I started to think about where my objects were and how I looked after it and at the same time, you know, car- carving into rock crystal, appreciating the clarity of it and get getting to grips with it, I just decided to maybe meditate a little bit further and speak about jewellery in another way. So using, um, making a kind of new object to speak about maybe looking after something sentimental. So you, these carved little bags or bottom of a plastic bag, you can't see the object in, but I'm, I guess I'm trying to make you think about the act of caring or looking after what was in there so it took the the space uh, a piece would be in the bag or wrapped up in a tissue or you know in, in a corner of a box um so a, a kind of contrast with maybe with the absent-mindedness and every day um but nevertheless there was something um important in there and uh, as a new piece of jewelry
0: is it important that people wear these pieces for you
1: um, that's a good question. I think it's something, it's never at the forefront of, of what I'm thinking about, but I find it a nice challenge to, because when you think sort of conceptually and deal with ideas, it's very, you know, it's easy and to forget, um, like you say, the wearing of jewellery. So I, I do find it a nice challenge to be able to try and build that into the piece to involve it as well, you know, as best I can. Because I find ultimately just to make a lovely object, it can work. But I think it's also an extra challenge if I can make it wearable as well, you know, and, and, and mm. I don't lose any of the, the the concept or, you know, it's not a compromise. So to build it in as a point of focus in a in a kind of sympathetic way, I, I think it, it's nice. And if I do see people wearing it, I feel sometimes it, it, yeah, it gives it another life, doesn't it? I think you see it on someone being worn, being appreciated, and almost at that point, it sort of belongs to them. Even momentarily, it leaves me. But and you kind of accept that. Is
0: that a strange feeling when it goes?
1: Uh, I've been asked this before, and I've thought about it myself. I, the piece is because I think they seem very personal, and you know, quite singular, and, and uh, almost from sentimental, you know, starting points. It does. It's not an odd feeling. I, I, I sort of, as the years have gone on, I think I quite welcome that. I quite enjoy it it's slightly part of the, maybe like the, the, the whole reveal at the end. It's sort of uh, a kind of, yeah, no, I enjoy it. I, I think it, it's nice. I like the fact that it can go off and, you know, have its own life and be appreciated mm. in, in another way or, or not appreciated. In fact, you know, you sort of um, get to the point where making or expression isn't entirely just the uh, from my perspective, although it, obviously starts that way but i'm also engaging in the world and, and a bigger yeah a bigger conversation you're know, part of something so i quite enjoy that now i, I, I do i do like to see that <laughs>
0: <laughs> can we talk a little bit about your your background you were the third daughter and, you, and your parents are originally from hong kong mm, mm. you grew up in wiltshire where your father ran a chinese takeaway yes how did the family end up there
1: well, my father came over in the late fifties, early sixties. You know, he sailed over from, from Hong Kong and without my mother at the time. Mm. And he was part of an, an influx of economic migrants that, that came um from Hong Kong to, to the UK. And actually he sailed into Liverpool um and started off there actually in his in his um in his work and career of he, he trained as a chef and a cook. And, and he worked in kitchens as a, as a young man there. I believe in, um, and then sort of over into Middlesbrough. So there's a, a connection there. I think as the years went on, um, he decided to, um, bring my, my mother over and, you know, and um, sort of put down roots in England. So he worked his way down the country. And I, I don't exactly know how he, he found Amesbury of all places, you know, famous for Stonehenge around the corner in Wiltshire. And and I'm ever grateful that he did because it's had a, you know, in my upbringing and I I was born here. So I don't have any connection to their life in Hong Kong or any, apart from their stories and and what they, you know, uh, brought us up with and the way that they lived. So it's, it's nice that he decided to put roots down somewhere almost entirely different to let's say how he grew up and, and where where, where mum and dad lived and maybe the similarity is is maybe the countryside I think dad my parents already had appreciation of um, the the you know the the outside rather than cities and and there was an abundance of that where where we grew up and I mentioned Stonehenge because it it, it is in you know of course incredibly famous and and uh, you know huge landmark and significance but also the landscape and the history of of that area and it it did feed in you know into my upbringing at school um we would have visits there so um maybe my father appreciated in you know in the same way that I I grew to as I as I got older um it was never fully expressed but I, I can imagine he Maybe turned up one day, went driving around and thought, oh, you know, I quite like this place. I'm going <laughs> to put down roots here um, and open a takeaway. So, yeah, that's how that's how we grew up.
0: Mm. And was the takeaway like a family concern? Were you working there as well or how did that work?
1: Yes. in Yes. In um, in, in my early years, I think more as a, a young child rather than as a teenager. So yeah, it was run by my father and um, my family worked there. Um at that time, we actually, you know, lived above, uh, in, in the flats. So we were right above the, the, the takeaway in the kitchens that were downstairs, you know, in, in the village at the time. That's how we grew up. We would, yeah, get up. You know, I would go to school. The weekends, I would help in the kitchens, help, help my mother and father. And, you know, odd evenings, we, we would be there. Or if, if not, we would be living up in the flats, doing homework or something. So there was a sense of, um, uh, you know, we're a very sort of practical family, really. And my father was educated in, in Hong Kong and went to school, but my my, my mother um, wasn't. So she sort of had a different outlook onto the world, maybe much more philosophical and much more immediate and domestic. And so she, she looked after us and brought us up while my father was working. And, and that was quite nice, that a kind of sense of practicality that... You can you know, you can make things and do things and explore life that way as well as, you know, contemplating on it and, and thinking about it. So I, I found that sort of quite you know, influential in a way in, in how I think about things and, and approach things, you know, even now in, in the making.
0: I remember you saying, I think to Jenny Murray on, on Woman's Hour that that um you and I'm gonna quote, interpret creativity as a constant source of annoyance to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm intrigued does that mean that there wasn't a lot of art or making going on in your household or
1: Yeah, I think I laugh at that because um it <laughs> it really was that, you know, it's all all the curiosity that a that a child has that of of you know making and breaking things and trying to mend them again or and um, so it was a sort of constant annoyance um, and badgering of, you know, h- how is this? What is this? What's it made of? You know, and uh, can I take it apart or, or reassemble it or something? So in that sense, we were very creative, but not not in the way where I was exposed to art through what's going on outside in the world. It was much more of a kind of practical creativity, kind of knitting, sewing, creating, making, making kites, you know, this sort of thing. and. Um, a kind of discovering a sense of creativity in that way I'm partly from school so I'm exposed to art and artists from school so that that was very important so it wasn't at home you know we had we had some books we had the classic there was a a dictionary and encyclopedia but you know very little else or they were in Chinese and I, I didn't learn Chinese when I was younger so they were fascinating to me but I didn't understand them and it's not until school or um, a library or a school visit uh, to a museum or, you know, something like that, that would instill this sense of another way to use creativity and making um, beyond like the immediate needs or practicality of a home setting. But I saw parallels, but also, you know, obviously like you know, big differences. So, yeah, it wasn't engendered at home in, in that sense, this, this. of learning about art and design that came from school college and and then you know at university
0: when did it dawn on you that you wanted to be a maker or an artist was was there a moment you can pinpoint
1: i think it was probably as early as from school i i think in engaging in the different subjects how it was separated then you know you had very i imagine schooling it's like this now but you know this division of you know the the academic subjects and then there was art and a kind of creativity. I guess it's done that way to manage each discipline. So I had a leaning towards the creative subjects. I think I felt then that not only did I enjoy the creative side, the making, the painting or the drawing, I found I could advance in it. I, I, at least I saw a way through that I could, mm. you know, kind of either get better, which is always the you know, the impression you, you you advance and get better. But I felt there was a sense even then that you can kind of discover um, other truths, or, you know, it seems very grand, with, you know, like a school child thinking about it. But I do remember thinking that. I thought, gosh, this is quite inspirational. You know, this is, you know, you're tapping into other ways of thinking here and, you know, exploring and actually um, a much more rounded way to judge something. I thought, I found that quite liberating. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's the distinction that actually there were there were different ways to agree or disagree, and I thought that was quite exciting, you know so some people would like something, let's say and then others wouldn't and uh, and and i I enjoyed that dialogue I think that you know I remember having with either the art teacher or the other students you know and we were all doing the same thing and yet it all came out always entirely different. And I, I thought that was fascinating to, to notice. Whilst, let's say, the other subjects, not, not that they were, um, you know, any less easy or difficult. It's just that it seemed like you would arrive at one conclusion, you know, and it's the application of that conclusion that probably has the excitement to it. But as a school child, you don't really know what you're going to do with all that knowledge. So it seemed narrow in that sense. And I think I enjoyed the art, the, you know, the art subjects because it, there was a, um, a collective freedom to it, and I, I thought that was quite nice.
0: The notion of becoming a jewellery designer came later still. When you were doing a BA at the University of Brighton in wood, metal, ceramics, and plastic, mm. it seems the turning point. Interestingly, was the discovery of a of a book.
1: Oh yes, the, the course is wood, metal, ceramics, plastics, as you say, and it attracted me. I think because of that, like you know, exploring these materials, and as part of the um, you know what what we studied or what we looked into. Then, then the kind of what you did with that material came through. So we explored, um, making, um, different objects and ceramics and then jewellery and metalwork also, you know, came into that. And whilst I remember, you know, learning about those techniques, I discovered, um, the, the new jewellery, um, trends and D- traditions by Peter Dormer and Ralph Turner. And, and that really was, um, you know, an eye-opener, I think. In the same way that you you imagine you sort of knew something ab- about uh, an object and subject, you know, like you know, oh, you think you know what jewelry is, and, um, and you know, we're going to make these uh, pieces, and and yet when I discovered that book, I thought the breadth and variety within it that also encompassed all these materials and ways of thinking and. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm just thinking about it now. I remember there, there were sections within it and it, it's titled Jewelry as, you know, Jewelry as Image, Jewelry as Theatre. And it, it felt very exciting to me. I thought it was really inspirational. So it, it had a, yeah, it had a really significant, um, uh, point in kind of opening up my eyes to artists that have explored, um, those, issues with materiality and wearing.
0: For the listeners, we should just explain that the, the new jewellery was written in 1985 and it it showcased mm. work from artists such as Heis Backer and Caroline Broadhead, Susanna Heron, who mm. were kind of interested in experimenting with the, the hierarchy of materials, I guess, mm. making things mm. from, I don't know, acrylic and paper and questioning our notion of what we hold precious and why precisely. And it was a forerunner to, to lots of different movements in the design world in general, I would I would argue. So as soon as you started leafing through this, you knew what you wanted to do.
1: I think from that point, the idea of making jewellery, yeah, I think I knew it then. So if if the course was to for you to find, you know, sympathy, let's say with, with a material or way of expression, and ultimately you sort of end your degree making particular things, I think I knew then that jewellery, at that point, metalwork was, you know, really for me. Um, so, and, and that, what was contained in that book and as you say the artists that you know you've just mentioned were sort of quite yeah quite profoundly influential i, I thought their way of thinking um i kind of wanted to join in in that conversation of ex- exploration i think i remember thinking that yeah
0: and what did your early work look like
1: oh from brighton
0: yeah
1: i actually made um ceramic vessels as well so ceramic forms pieces that were related to the ceramic forms that were objects but you could take smaller parts away and wear them and I think they also they were made of metal and I think I called them sort of amulets so they had um, smaller pieces of ceramic within inside the little container so they were I guess you could say they were a bit like types of lockets or wearing something sentimental uh, or amuletic that would hold something and so i would put small parts of ceramics inside there was a pin that you could freely pin onto your you know clothing and i remember asking my father at the time to write um maybe some words or you know um words of luck or for protection <laughs> In Chinese, because actually Dad was quite a, a, a good calligrapher. You know, he had a real way with um, writing in, in brush, brush and ink. Uh, it was very beautiful, actually. At least I thought it was, you know, very beautiful. And and that symbolism of, of Chinese characters. So I remember asking him to do some on, on some, you know, um, handmade paper. And he, was, he sent them to me and I folded them up very small and I popped them into these brooches. And so they were, they were sort of slightly hidden, slightly private, but I knew they were there. And um, so they featured as as, as part of the pieces.
0: I mean, you ended up getting an MA from the Royal College of Art and there's a a rather lyrical, I think, a a rather beautiful story about your graduation piece and a chance meeting with a a Greek woman that seems to in some way encapsulate or says something about your approach to jewellery.
1: Yes, yes. In that last year, so yeah, the Royal College, building up a, a kind of body of work I was already thinking about maybe um, a sense of uh, jewelry and sentimentality and I was sort of using you know recognizable forms of jewelry then so l- looking at rings and bangles so using those structures to sort of carry an idea and sort of halfway through that last year I did I did meet um uh, a Greek lady and I remember distinctly um seeing from the bottom of her um, sleeve in one corner, she had a big sort of gold ring and it was attached to her watch strap and it was dangling out of her, you know, clothing, her her sleeve. And I I distinctly remember noticing it and I politely asked about it. And she told me that um, her husband had recently died and this was his wedding ring that she kept with her. Um, And he had, you know quite big fingers, and she was quite a delicate lady, so it didn't fit her fingers. She didn't want to wear it around her neck um on a chain um and and not you know on show, and she didn't want to hide it either, so she f- just thought practically I would just you know put it through my watch strap and it and it would be there and I remember thinking, um you know um what you know firstly you know what what sort of moving kind of story really you know it was a lovely thing to do and it just that vision of it stayed with me for quite quite a long time and I was really curious about it so whilst I was developing the the collection my graduate collection that I that thought got involved into the collection pieces so I um I made a replica of the ring at at the time I asked to see it and inside um, was engraved her name in Greek and the year that they they were married. So I remembered and I made notes, and unbeknownst to her, I sort of went off and made a replica of it. So I scaled it up to the the size of a bangle, you know, a, a replica, um, and engraved her name inside and, um, put the date on and I had it as part of my show. And, um, and I, you know, I, I, I did, I did ask for her permission to do something. She didn't know what I was going to do, but I, I asked, you know, I was very inspired by seeing this and, you know, would you mind if I use some of these thoughts in my own work, you know, they, they inspire me. And I had the piece in the show and um, she came along to to see it and she was very moved. And um, the, the lovely thing is that she... Bought the piece, and now she owns. She owns it, so she owned it from that day, and she does wear it from time to time. And um, and that was, you know, over twenty years ago. So you're right; it probably does encapsulate almost like, let's say, in a nutshell. Perhaps I would go from a thought, um, seeing something, I would sort of, you know, uh, rally around, to gather materials, or a way of working, decide upon it, and then there's an outcome, you know, and a piece and it wasn't necessarily made for her, but as it is, she yeah, she owns it now and, and it belongs to her.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting because while you're doing pieces that are, I mean, fundamentally, I guess you could argue installation art, you've also taken on commissions, the biggest of which was the, the medals for the Paralympic Games in 2012 in London, mm. uh, which was based on the idea of, of Nike, the, the goddess of victory. Mm. presumably for a project like that which i'm guessing has to go through numerous committees you have to think in a very different way i'm I'm guessing more like an industrial designer rather than an artist perhaps
1: yes you're you're right It, it it was a huge project and um also in time scale i think it took up you know two years almost sort of non-stop really in the development of it and all under um you know almost in secrecy to you know before the 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 grand reveal at the end, so that was unusual in itself. That um, only you know, sort of nearest and dearest that I could talk to about it, and I enjoy talking about my work, and I find you know actual you know uh, um, creative expression through that is sort of important. So actually, to kind of try to keep it to myself was quite difficult already, and um, it it was it was very different. Yeah, I think actually to appreciate it's they were very supportive i think everybody that i worked with no matter how big the team was and there was the paralympic olympic committee there was also the royal mint as well and uh, and everybody else you know that also has to meet and kind of agree on every little detail that goes on the medal you know and sometimes um things would have to happen overnight because to get a group of people together to view something is is not you know an easy task so um the the pace of things and having to kind of work in that way uh, was very difficult at times and responding to that whilst if you work on your own you can more or less set your you know your own deadlines and work within that structure and I'm more used to that so I think that shift of gear in working and collaborating um was you know was was quite exciting at the same time as quite difficult to juggle. And so I learnt a huge amount of, uh, you know, working with people and, you know, consideration and, le- and maybe thinking, appreciating a bit more and thinking ahead of what they would expect and what they would want. Generally, um, I, I would be just having that conversation with myself if I'm making my own pieces and work. and And so that sense of appreciation, I think, uh, from all perspectives uh it it is you know it was, was was very good it was quite tough at times i think
0: <laughs> so i'm i'm intrigued um in your monograph called tom foolery which is a pun on jewellery a cockney rhyming slang obviously there's a section that contains a kind of email exchange between you and caroline broadhead who we mentioned mm. earlier and there's a quote i'd like to take from it where you write the imagination is a wondrous and torturous tool and you go on to add the joy or frustration of making comes in trying to achieve this perfection in reality. So are you a perfectionist, Lynn? And does this make life difficult?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think I make life difficult for myself, yes. I think that's that's entirely true. It is a wondrous and torturous tool because you 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 can imagine, or at least I can, you know, I imagine to such a degree there is a, a form of perfection to it, and it, it's just so different in reality. But I've come to accept actually that is where the excitement happens, isn't it? It's that trying to match up what's actually happening with what what you're imagining, what you're thinking, and then dealing with the realities of it. So you can, I can, I've learned to maybe kind of take out the frustration and kind of embrace that okay, there may be that aim and towards a kind of perfection. um, But actually, there's um, another kind in, you know, staring right back at you with what you've just done. And and I think that sometimes you can't imagine that, you know, no matter how... um, uh, yeah how I'm yeah how kind of knowledgeable you are how much experience you have I think it's probably what keeps you going you know as an artist or me as a maker is just when you think you you know you know enough or you think you know all that the reality tells you something different and I think that's sort of quite exciting but yeah I do <laughs> I do remember that kind of dialogue that I had with Caroline that that was that was really great actually we, we sort of thought about our each of our processes and you know what what drives us what uh um, we think about how how things actually work and um yeah i i think yeah there there is that you if i picture something and i think i'm i don't think i'm unique in it you if you say a circle your mind pictures you know something perfect it's never a wiggly circle it or a square it's actually perfect <laughs> and so there's a slight uh you know um you know, a, a kind of um, a, a goal or a, a target that's ultimately out of reach, anyway. So it's it's also important to focus on what's happening in your hands and what, what you're trying to achieve there, and to try and balance the two. So I think noticing that was, was sort of quite was funny and also you know enlightening at the same time.
0: <laughs> and you've been a long-standing tutor at Central Saint Martins in London, which you alluded to earlier. Um, I mean, teaching is obviously an important part of your Your practice your life um Mm. what do you enjoy about it why do it
1: why do it um i mean not only the the subject that i teach in and it's it is um jewelry you know and i've been involved with it probably as long oh i guess it's coming up to me maybe it's coming up to maybe almost 20 years now involved in the subject and and seeing how it's developed and the nature of teaching these days particularly at Central Somalterns we have we have lots of students so that seeing that shift over the years um and, and how we engage uh with, with students I think what keeps me going is maybe it's a part of that exchange I think I uh, think It's not I'm trying to impart my knowledge directly, you know, with students. I feel that dialogue and sharing something and discovering how almost each individual deals with the subject of jewellery, the making of it, um, and going through all the sort of trials and tribulations of making and thinking about it, finding their way in the world. I really enjoy that. I find that um, invigorating for me and it it, you know keeps me on my toes and also I think the sense of maybe nurturing some something that's shared with each student it's like finding their voice their their place within it you know what what they want to say and tapping into that so if it feels like a kind of shared um, experience it feels like they're sort of me them and the jewelry in front of us so it's like a dialogue between you know three of us including the object or the subject we're talking about and i i find that you know quite exciting to to be in times mm. you know times 50 <laughs> <laughs> you know fifty, fifty 50 different yeah 50 different conversations about jewelry at any one time you know that's a challenge and an eye-opener and uh you know and and incredibly satisfying at the same time so it's never never the same and um that that continues to um you know pulls me in and 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 I'm you know still with it so yeah I I think I think it's probably that yeah
0: Lynn I've taken up loads of your time so this is the final question and then I will let you get on and and do what you've got to do traditionally we at this stage of the interview we ask you know what are your plans for the future what can we be expecting from you
1: Oh, um, well, since sort of lockdown is, you know, slightly easing and I, I can see that, you know, sort of life is coming back, not not to entirely normal, but we're, you know, we're finding our way through things. I think I'm um, looking forward to, yeah, kind of engaging back out into the world again and maybe even starting up teaching, you know, going back to university a bit, seeing students and colleagues. And I think with, with work, it yeah, it's kind of carrying on, really. Um, there's so much more to discover. I feel like even though I've been working these past few years with stone, I'm still, you know, almost so at the beginning of something, it feels like, and there's so much to discover. So I think, yeah, um, let, let's see. Let's see what happens. I think yeah. I'd love to get kind of making and grinding and cutting again <laughs> with the material and, and, and um, yeah, seeing seeing how the past few months um, have maybe could get absorbed into that somewhere.
0: Well, Lynn, that was lovely. It was completely beguiling. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: And to learn more about Lynn's work, go to lynchung.co.uk. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. If you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Just to let you know, too, that I'm planning to do one more of these lockdown specials in July. Uh, Then we'll be taking a short break before coming back in September. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you're all staying safe.